Let us continue in prayer. Oh, Father, how amazing you are. How great, how gracious, how powerful and wonderful, how loving and tender mercy you are. That you would reveal yourself through your word, that you would share your mind and your heart and let us know the depth of this God, how vulnerable that is, how incredible that you put it in writing, that you preserved it, that you even translated so we could have it right now here in English, in Montreal. It's an incredible thing that you've done for us. And your spirit opens our eyes to see and understand where so many are blind to it. They read, they mock, they reject, they throw away. But for us, it is bread from heaven. And we want to feed on it all the time. And, and here we are right now, wanting to sit around in a circle and just feed on just a few verses. And we wanted to feed our souls and our minds and our thoughts. As we look at this prayer, as, as your son was reaching out to you, and we do the same thing in prayer, and we want to learn from his prayers. We want to meditate on the way he approached you and let it lead us in how we approach you as well. Be with the preacher, feeble and weak as he is, and be with his, his words and his thoughts. It may be made the only what you have to say, and everything else just gone. May we just sit at the feet of Christ and learn from him right now and be moved also. Let us not just be hearers but doers of the word. May it stay in our hearts deep inside like a seed from God that will grow during the week as you water it with other things and other parts of your word and change us into the image of Christ through that. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you are ready to enter hollow ground once again as the veil of eternity is removed and we're permitted to sneak in and listen in as the son talks with the father. And like I tried to argue last time, this is Jesus in his divinity praying. Not that we want to split apart Jesus, but the fact is that he could speak about things being before they happened. God does that. So we really are looking at this eternal intimacy between the Father and the Son. Like I said, this is hollow ground. This is not just a text of Scripture. This is God speaking with God, and it should leave us in awe, even if we're going to look at just a few verses, actually. And it's interesting because we call it the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus interceding for the disciples present and future like us. But when you boil it down, the request itself is very simple. Build my church. He asked to set aside the disciples and make them one over and over over again. That, that's it. That's the main request. But when you look at the text, you see it, it's way more than just one verse. So there's a lot going on here. And it's really more about Jesus talking with his father, speaking with him, interacting with him. So like I said, there's a lot to teach us about what intercession is. When I think of intercession, I think of, well, I think of somebody I care for, and I pray for them and their needs and their situation, and then I pray for somebody else and their need and their situation. Jesus didn't say, I pray for Peter. He's got a temper problem. Help him be calm, Lord. I pray for Thomas. He's a bit of a doubter. Help his faith. Or James and John. Now, they got a temper problem. Give them more love. No, he, like I said, he just says, builds my church. But he says so much more. In the text we're going to look at, verse 6 to 10, there's not even one request in it. He's not going to ask anything in it. He's actually going to be asking, uh, explaining why he's praying for them and why the Father should be answering that prayer. That's why I call it the great why questions. 
that text that is going to be for, before us, 6 to 10, is all about Jesus explaining why is he praying for these men and why the Father should answer that. We want to get back in the context. So we're going to read verse 1 to 10, focusing on verse 6 to 10. So verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give him eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you've sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours is mine, and I'm glorified in them. Like I said, not one request. Actually, the section before us is a cycle of between uh, the Father, the Son, and the disciples over and over again. A cycle of action, and these actions, first of all, it's the Father giving to the Son, and the Son giving to the disciples over and over again. And what the disciples do, they receive. It'll talk about believing or keeping, but it comes down to Jesus gives to the disciples, and they receive it. And the object itself that they receive is the Word of God, of course. In different ways, it'll be speaking of this Word, this Gospel, this truth, the Father gave to the Son, and the Son gave back to the disciples, and they received it. So that's what's before us. As we start our study, we see Jesus saying, I have manifested your name. I said last time, the verbs are important. This time it's not the verb tense, it's the verb itself, manifested, revealed. Speaking of removing a veil, a bit like the book of Revelation is the removing of the veil of the future so we can see glimpses of what it's going to look like. He revealed the name. And we have to understand that, biblically speaking, the name isn't just a title. It represents the person, the quality, if you will hear, the attributes of this God. Like when Moses said, what is your name? He didn't just mean, give me the secret title of your name. He means, who are you? And of course, what is his answer, right? I am. I exist. I'm self-sufficient. Which is mind-blowing because back then, all the deities come to exist through something else. But God simply is, and always was, and sustains everything. So when Jesus talks about manifesting and revealing the name, he means he revealed the very person of God. Right? Part of the mission of Jesus, other than dying for our sins, was to reveal the Father to us, to them. Think, for example, of how he revealed the goodness of God by healing people and caring for them. Think about how he revealed also the tender mercy of God by how he cared for children and blessed them. 
how he revealed God's omniscience. He knew what was in the hearts of man. He knew about specific things when he sent the disciples. He told them, go down that street, you'll meet a donkey. You say this, they say that, you let them go. He knew it all because he's omniscient. He also revealed God's great wisdom. Think of all his teachings, his parables. I've been going through them the last couple of years, and I've been reading some good commentaries on them. And I can tell you there's some of these teachings, some of these parables, they shrug their shoulders saying, we're not sure what he fully meant, because that's the wisdom of God made flesh. It's beyond us. He revealed God's power. I mean, he spoke and no more death. He spoke and leprosy was gone. When he came to capture him, he simply said his name, I am, and they fell. That's power. He also revealed God's holiness by his righteous indignation against sin, right, in the temple when he cleansed it, or even when he speaks against the religious leaders. Or we could also think of when he says, you perverse generation. He was against sin, and he showed that. And I can keep going. We could go through the entire Old Testament when God, through uh, the stories or the prophets, he reveals himself, and then you take that in the Gospels. And you will see moment by moment Jesus in flesh revealing the Father to us again and again and again. I would say this, the penultimate version, the, the great apex, is the cross. Right? The cross, God's power and holiness and righteousness is manifested, but also his love and his mercy and his kindness. Jesus revealed the Father to the people who you gave me out of the world. That's important because, like I said, the main request is what? Sanctify them. Take them out of the world in the sense, not out of the world itself, but make them different in the world. And this is more than just being moral and going to church. A lot of people are moral and they go to church. You want a good understanding of what it means to be taken out of the world by what Jesus says here? To be sanctified? Read uh, Colossians 3 and 4. Read Ephesians 4 to 6. Romans 12 to 15 where God speaks of all these sins that need to be put to death. And then just, it's not just about sex and violence, right? It's so much more that needs to be put to death. Or the kind of love that he calls us to, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Peter chapter 4. That's what he means to be set apart, right? Taken out of the world, to be different from the world. And he said that he gave to Jesus out of the world. As he continues to say, yours they were, and you gave them to me. More election language. I don't like it. But like I said last time, this isn't about a theological slant. This is Jesus speaking. In his prayer to the Father saying, they were yours, and you gave them to me. And this is pretty passive for the disciples at this point, right? I mean, we set a cycle. The Father took some, gave them to the Son. The Son revealed the Father to them. What about the disciples in this? Glad you asked and they have kept your word. That's their part. Like I said before, they received the word. But when you read that, you should say, wait a second. He says, they have, present tense, kept your word? They're perfectly obedient already? Aren't these the people that are gonna abandon him in a few minutes? They have, present tense, kept your word. How can he say that? When you think of that, I'll take a sip of water. I would say that my answer to this interesting question is in three parts. The first 
Like I mentioned last time, this prayer is built off the upper room discourse. Right? The fruit of this prayer has its roots in that discourse that comes before. So in chapter 15 of John, when Jesus says to abide in him so you can bear fruit, and those who don't abide in him, those who don't hide in his finished work, they're going to burn. That's it. He then says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandment and abide in his love. In other words, he already told them they had to do it, so he can say, now they're doing it, because I already told them to do it. That's part of the answer. That's the first part. They, he told them, so now he can say, yes, now they're doing it. Second part of the answer is found the word keep, which doesn't specifically mean to obey. The word speaks of honoring and treasuring and protecting the commandments. Yes, there's a sense of then therefore you do them, but first and foremost, they mean to honor and treasure it. That's why Jesus then says, just as I, in the same way, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's not saying, I earn God's love by obeying. Please no, he didn't do that. He had God's love from all eternity. And he lived in that love by obeying the commandments. So the same thing for the disciples here. If they treasure, if they see these commandments as the way to stay in that light, in that relationship with God, then they will live according to it imperfectly. But it starts with that treasuring aspect. That's what the word keep means. So that's the second part. They already knew, and what they, did, what they knew is that they had to treasure the commandments. But the last part is when we get back to the verse. He says word, not commandments. Now, it's not being pedantic. It's not being nitpicking, focused on details. The commandments are included in the word. But we have to ask our questions, what word is he talking to? He's talking about the word he's giving them from the beginning, the gospel. That's what, when you look at the upper room discourse, you realize it's mostly Jesus giving them the gospel in certain ways in different, in different facets. Right? Believe in me as you believe in God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. Right? Abiding, it's, it's the gospel. They, they, they're keeping it now. They're holding on to that truth. They're treasuring that truth as the truth. They're realizing I am the door, the way. And that's what I love about that little phrase that he speaks in present tense. Because they won't perfectly believe and understand. They'll, they'll fail. They'll, they'll walk away later on. They'll question. They'll even go to the tomb because they didn't fully get everything. Still, Jesus looks down and says, they have kept your word. They, get, they got enough of it. And I love that because my faith is pathetic. Always filled with worries and questions and, and doubts. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And still Jesus looks down and says, he has kept my word. He does treasure it enough. I think that's beautiful. That's his way of seeing the disciples like he does for us too. In the present tense, he's still talking when he says, and now they know. Again, this is built off the upper room discourse. See, through that discourse, Jesus teaches. They, answer, they ask questions. He answers them. He teaches more things. They ask more questions. He answers them. They ask the same questions. He answers them again. And at the end of all of it, that last section in chapter 16, they say this. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came 
from God. Now, now keep that last part in, in mind, right? They, they get that he comes from God. We'll put it in the right pocket for now. Because now they get it. That's why Jesus can say, you do believe, right? It's, it's a rhetorical question here. You, you do get it. And he says it here, right? Now they know. They, they got not fully and perfectly, like I said. They'll go to the tomb. They don't fully get it. But enough that Jesus say, now they know. They know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now, the grammar people in the audience would say, wait a second, that's rep- repetition. That's redundancy. Everything you gave me comes from you. If I say, every gift my wife gives me comes from my wife, I'm repeating myself. But Jesus doesn't just repeat himself to repeat himself. What he's saying is profound and deep, and the understanding of it can be found that little word from really speaks of the source. A good way to to translate verse 7 also could be that everything that you've given me has been made by comes from you. In other words, you're the source of all these things that was given to me. Remember what we put in our pockets before? I hope you do, because I'm going to pull it out now. When they said, we know you come from God, we're getting that he's the source. He, he told them, the Father is greater than me. Your prayer is not, is not just you say things, you turn to God in my name, and he will answer you. They're getting it now. Everything comes from God. And don't forget that the everything includes the people. Remember verse 6? They were your people, you gave them to me. Everyone that you've given me is from you. They're getting it now. They're getting what Jesus has been teaching them. We We see that in John 6. We saw it last time. We'll see it again soon. But you have to remember that John 6 is in the same book as John 17. I know it sounds silly to say, but each gospel writer was led by the Spirit to present a certain facet of Jesus. Like Matthew, right? Matthew focused on the fact that he's the promised king of the Jews, the Messiah. So he he talks a lot about all the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Mark focuses on the fact that he's a suffering servant and everything he did. John, who's focused on the divinity of Jesus, also reminds us he comes from the Father, right? The Word was with God. He came from God. It's in John that we meet when the uh, Greeks want to meet Jesus, we hear the voice of God. Only John tells about that. It's also at the the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus, before he simply says, come out, he first thanks the Father. He didn't actually ask the Father anything, he just thanks him so they can know it comes from him. See, again and again, it's pointing back to the source. And John 6 is interesting because it happens after the multiplication of the loaves. A story, it's in four Gospels, but John tells us what happens the next day. When people show up to Jesus and say, give us more bread. And Jesus says, you need the bread of heaven. And they don't get it. And this is, how, this is what Jesus explains of it. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Or in other words, I've been telling you these truths about who I am and you don't believe it. I've shown it to you through miracles. You still don't believe it. Which is interesting because there are people nowadays saying, if we just went out and do miracles, people would believe. Jesus says, I did that. It didn't work. And we have to understand that what comes next is Jesus explaining why they heard and they saw and didn't believe when he says this. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Why is it that I'm teaching you and showing you and you're not believing? Because only those the Father gives me will come to me. Again, this, this is Jesus speaking. He continues in verse 44 and 45 by saying, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you understand, drawing is the same thing as pulling water out of a well. I don't just say, water, please come out. No, I pull, I throw the bucket in, and I pull it out by force. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written with the prophets, it, written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's important to put in the, right, the left pocket for now. Because when we come back to our little text, Jesus says, now they get that. See, what I've told them about I, it calls, comes from the Father, they're getting it. They get it, I'm from the Father, but they get also they're here because of the Father. They're getting that. They're understanding that you are the source of salvation itself in every way possible. Not just you did your part and now we do ours. You did it all. They're getting that. See, this is leading to why Jesus is praying for them. But he's going to continue to explain why they're getting it. Why are they getting it? Well, because, for I have given them the words that you gave me. They're getting it because I told them about this, and we just read it in chapter 6. So I, I've told them about these things, and they're getting it. So again, we're seeing the cycle being repeated. First, the Father gives to the Son people, and just reveals the Father to them, and they receive it. Now he says, the Father gives me the word, the truth, all the truth of who God is and what he did, and I gave it to them. And what did they do with this? Glad you asked. And they have received them, and I've come to know in truth that I come from you, and I have believed that you sent me. This isn't the three steps of salvation, receive, know, and believe. This is three ways of saying the same thing. You receive, you grasp the truth. You know you grasp it with your mind. You believe you grasp it with your heart. One way or the other, you grasp this great truth. Truth, like he just spoke about. Remember what I, what I said to put in the left pocket? I hope you, you didn't forget it, because we're going to pull it out again. Those who are taught by God will come to Jesus. And now he's saying the fact that they've received it, that they know they believe that I'm the, the, the Messiah, means that they were the one taught by you. See, that's important to Jesus. This is leading to why he's praying for them. But what do they know exactly? And that's important as well. Remember the right pocket? I came from you. You sent me. Again, saying the same thing in two different ways. That he is from God. They're getting that God is the source. They're getting Christ came from him. They're getting this great truth over and over again. This, as I said, makes Jesus say, I'm praying for them. See, we've been, been building it all up from the beginning now. They're the ones who got it. There was the teaching out there, but they got it. And they came to me proving it they got it. And that's why I'm praying for them. Now he's going to say something pretty shocking. Before I shock you, I'm going to dip a sip of water. You ready to be shocked? 
I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you've given me. Every commentary I read tries to explain and defend Jesus here. Well, he's going to pray for them later. He loves the world anyways. Why do we want to defend Jesus or defend God? Too many times we want to defend what God says. When he says, I am the potter, and all of you are the clay, and I do what I want with the clay, we want to say, well, he doesn't really mean that. You know, he loves us. No, he, he said it, he means it. He is God. He is the creator. He does whatever he pleases. Jesus can say, I am not praying for the world. I am the mediator of the elect. I am the mediator of the disciples. Yes, but God loves the world, though. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever believes in him will not perish. But those who don't, they perish. They, they don't have that relationship with God. They don't have a mediator on their side for that. We do. Now, that doesn't excuse us because in Timothy, Paul says that we are to pray for all men everywhere, interceding for them. See, he intercedes for us, we intercede for them. That's the, that's the thing. But still, I am praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. Because again, it's about them and the demonstration that they are the chosen ones because they believe these things, because they're following imperfectly in these things. And this finally brings us to why the Father should answer. You ready to find out why? If you do, okay. For they are yours. So simple, right? And yet so profound. He told them, he said before, they were yours and you gave them to me. The father had chosen and given it to the son. And he says, that's why you should answer because they're yours. Right? They're your children. It's a little bit like having kids, which I don't have, but it's a bit like having kids, even when they're really rebellious and disobedient, you can't say, well, they're not my kids anymore. No, you can't do that. They're yours. Well, there's a sense where Jesus is saying, they're yours. And that's why you should be caring for them, answering this prayer that I'm about to do for them. Because they are yours. You chose them from all eternity. You've loved them from all eternity. And then he brings the exclamation mark on this whole conversation. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Have you noticed how the cycle just got broken? The father takes, gives to the son. The son takes, gives to the disciples over and over again. What, just, what is he saying here? First of all, he's saying, all mine is yours. He's giving back to the Father. And what is your, yours is mine. Where are the disciples in this? They're getting the short and the stick here, in a sense. Because the cycle is just about God now, the Father and the Son. We're going to find out there's something about the disciples, but it's not about them getting something now. It's between the Father and the Son, because it's all about God. Everything is of Him, by Him, for Him. And this is a, is, it's a good reminder as he closes up this part right now before he starts interceding to say, all that is mine is yours and all that's yours is mine. It's about us. It's about God. Because sometimes we fall into that trap of seeing Jesus like the funnel by which all the blessings of God are put in and they kind of trickle down to us. And if you do more and pray more, you'll get more blessings. And it's true, in Christ, all spiritual blessings are given. But he's not the thing to get it. Because it's not about us getting it. It's about the Father, and it's about the Son, and about God being glorified. That's what he's going to say right after. 
and I'm glorified in them. See, that's the part of the disciples. They get to be the ones to glorify him. This takes us back to the beginning when he talked about how he took them out of the world to sanctify them, right? To, to put them aside so they could glorify Jesus. See, that means our struggle with sin isn't first and foremost about how we feel yucky when we sin. It's about how Christ is not glorified. It also means that everything we go through, all things work together for our good, all that good is to look like Christ so he can be seen in this world, right? To become more reflectors of his glory. It means every trial and tribulation that we go through are to make us more like Christ, as Brother James tells us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Not perfect and complete so you can look amazing, no, so Christ can be seen through you, because it's, it's about him again. And this isn't just a passive action. Just lay back and let God do his work, like a massage or something. Just make me like Jesus. No, there's, there's an active participation. Your attitude, your reaction. I say this because verse 5 if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. This asking of wisdom is in the context of trials. It's in a situation where when trials hit us, we don't think straight. We are like the disciples in the boat during the storm. We panic. Even though we realize the Messiah, who did miracles just a few minutes before, who we know are not supposed to die, is right there. We, we still panic. We need to say, Lord, give us wisdom right now so I can react and act in a way that will glorify Jesus. See, that's, that's the first application of what is before us in the text. It's about remem remember remembering, easy to say, remembering that you were set aside to glorify Christ and in every way possible. Now, the second part, the second application is in what they've understood the disciples. They are his. See, the reason you're in a relationship with God right now, it's not because you asked Jesus into your heart, or you prayed a prayer, or you were seeking Him. It's because He first loved you and saved you from all eternity. He made a covenant, an eternal covenant, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us in a particular way. Just like He did with Abraham. Remember Abraham? Father Abraham? He was worshiping idols. He wasn't seeking Yahweh. God pulled him out. Right? He draw him out of that life of the idolatry. And Abraham didn't say, please give me a covenant now. No, God gave him a covenant. Abraham didn't ask. And in that covenant, God cut the covenant. Remember that moment when he cut animals in half and God passes in between? kind of looks weird because it was a, a way of doing it back then to make a contract. See, so you would cut the animals, and both people would walk in between the animals with the idea of, if we do not do our part, may we be cut to pieces. It's a bit like the modern version of the mafia. If you don't pay, we break your legs. It was kind of like that. If you don't fulfill the covenant, you will be cut to pieces. Except only God went through it. God took the entirety of the covenant on himself. Israel didn't obey, and so his son was cut to pieces on the cross for our disobedience. The only reason that God answers our prayers is not because we got both faith. It is because 
in his mercy and his kindness, he reached out his hand while we were playing in the mud and wanted to stay there. He pulled us out, washed us in the blood of his son, pulled us to his bosom and said, tell me how to take care of you. See, that's why he's answering. That should leave us in trembling, awe, and, and wonder and humility that he would answer us. But he also encouraged us because sometimes we don't feel we have that much faith or that I'm faithful. Sometimes I feel my prayers suck. But it doesn't matter because I am his. That's why he's going to answer me. If you've recognized that your sin is pulling you down to hell because the wages of sin is death, and in faith you reached out to Christ to save you, to justify you, then you are his, and he will care for you. Isn't that beautiful and encouraging from what Jesus just said? Well, let us pray then. Yes, Father, we are in awe of that because we recognize you don't need us. You, you, you are perfectly satisfied and self-sufficient. And, I mean, if we're honest, we really don't bring anything to the table. We, we never could say that we've been so amazing that you needed us. And yet you still love us. And you still chose us. You're still in a relationship with us because you want to be. And we, we pray that that truth, that we are yours and that's why you care for us, will remain in our hearts in those difficult times of doubt and question when the enemy rages against us. Remind us, oh God, we are yours. And that's all that matters. Please remind us these things. Lord, I pray for those who right now are struggling and doubting and feeling basically like garbage. Remind them, they are yours, and you love them, and that's it. Let no other words be heard from their mouth, but he is mine, and I'm his. And to just trust in that. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.